Today's episode is brought to you by Plum Deluxe Tea, fresh, organic, loose-leaf tea. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for a special offer. Before we jump into today's conversation, we want to remind you that the first Practice of Being Seen retreat is coming up this August in the Catskill Mountains. Please join us for a retreat we're calling Revision, a gathering of therapist healers who have a vision that they want to bring into the world. Learn more at www.practiceofbeingseen.com events. The Practice of Being Seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships, and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is The Practice of Being Seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today, we are so pleased to have Nam Rindani with us. Nam is a licensed marriage and family therapist with an in-person and virtual therapy practice in San Diego, California. With 14 years experience as a therapist in both India and the U.S., she creates leaders out of those who struggle. Born and raised in India and now living in the U.S., Nam brings a creative and powerful blend of cultures, lenses, and approaches to the therapy realm. Using a dynamic combination of depth and practicality, Nam breaks the mold in so many ways. And I need to let you know, before we sit down for an interview, we ask all of our guests to tell us about who they seek to help with their work. It's generally a quick note that helps us understand our guests' audience and what they have in common with ours. This one time, we're inspired to read you exactly what Nam sent to us. These are her words. My dearest, most loved, and deeply respected audience comprises those who knowingly or unknowingly are carrying the weight of shame, secrecy, and a constant invisible battle between the me that everyone sees and the me that only truly is or wants to be seen. My audience are the unseen and the work-in-progress leaders who typically come in with struggles that most recognize stress, depression, anxiety, etc. When we peel back the onion, go down deep, the real battle is a life that is boxed. Behaviors, choices, and experience that are engaged in because of what one is taught or told as opposed to what one really wants and believes in. My audience are the iconoclasts, trailblazers, and social justice leaders in plain clothes. Oh. Welcome, Nam. Thank you so much, Marissa and Rebecca. I I am so happy to be um, here talking to the two of you that as I was listening to the two of you introduce me, I had the adult um, version of being in the backseat of a car when you're driving to Disneyland going, okay, okay, are we there yet? Um, I'm just, thank you for reading out my introduction with the love and care you did. And at the same time, are we there yet? <laughs> Get to Disneyland? We're there, sweetie. We're there. Oh, this is so delicious to have this opportunity to truly connect with you like this. I've I've only gotten to know you in the online sphere. I've never met you in person. I think this might even be the first time we're actually talking. And I'm just like, I'm just blown away at this opportunity. You're somebody that's on my short list of people that I've always wanted to connect more with. Oh. I feel exactly the same about both of you. And it's 
it's so beautifully surreal and surprising to to be talking to the two of you and still hold this knowing of what your insights are about and i think that's the beauty of the online space too that allows us to connect before we physically see each other yeah. kind of being it's kind of being seen and seeing without your eyes but with your heart it really is you know that inspires me just to dive right in with you if you're okay with that i am a okay I figured you might be, but I, you know, I know we bring to this, this podcast, um, and to our listeners, our own idea of what being seen is. And I know that I'm going to love your definition, but I'd love for you to dive in and just muse with us a little bit about what being seen means to you. For me, being seen is an ongoing process. It's, it's fluid and almost like a dance between our outsides and our insides. And with our outsides continuously changing from who we speak to, what the day is like, um, what setting we are in, I think our response to the outside changes as well. And so for me, if I were to define what being seen is, it's the confident and the solid practice of trusting that whoever you are and whatever part of you shows up, in any given moment, any given setting, any given conversation is truly who you are and who you are is okay. So for me, being seen is the simple act of breathing and being and existing without apology and with 100% authenticity. Oh, I just love that. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm scribbling some notes as you're talking and but the main part that I just wrote down was it's a solid practice of trusting yourself. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And Absolutely. You know, and what I'm picking up on too is that there's that solidity, but there's also that fluidity. Yes. And that's all part of that dance you were talking about. Absolutely. Because I think, I think we get so conditioned into either being, oh, we must be flexible and fluid mm. at all times or... We must have structure and order and organization at all times that sometimes we miss the dance and mm -hmm. the dance is about being still and spinning at the same time, um, one after the other. And so the solid practices in trusting the stillness and trusting the movement as and when it shows up. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I often talk, I do a lot of work, as you know, with relationships and with couples, um, and I often am talking with my clients about the dance, the dance of the pursuit and the, you know, one partner is often kind of leaning in a little bit more and pursuing a little bit more, and the other partner is kind of retreating a little bit and moving back. And that you know, in a healthy relationship that fluctuates and flows, um, and it's not just one-sided, but we're often talking about that. And so as I hear you talking about what being seen is, and I'm hearing you talk about this fluidity and the sol solidness and this dance, I'm coming back a little bit to my own understanding of relationships. And I know one of the things we talk about here a lot is how stories shape relationships and relationships shape stories. And I know that you're going to have something to add to that. My goodness. <laughs> that, that phrase, um, 
of you know relationships shaping stories and stories shaping relationships if we were to break down just what life is about it's about the stories we tell ourselves it's about the stories we hear and the blend of both it's it's so much of who we are is you know it, it's storytelling whether it's the stories we write with our clients it's the stories we write with our partners and kids and family members even when we go to a grocery store and you know we're in the checkout line that becomes a story for that person today i met this person who bought apples and oranges and um chips that she probably shouldn't be eating and way too many cookies even <laughs> that becomes a story <laughs> stories are everywhere they so are Oh, I feel like you're tearing pages out of my notebook right now. I mean, if you, if you ever feel like this whole therapist thing isn't going to be what's working for you, writing coaching may be exactly up your, up your alley. <laughs> you know, I sometimes actually feel that if I were to create an entire therapy practice just by writing letters um, to people, that would be okay. That's, there's so much power and care in the written word and how we choose to speak about things that mm. hearing you say that actually makes me really really happy <laughs> I mean because the way I'm thinking of it too is when you're talking about that dance between two members of a couple I often talk about it with writers in terms of the dance between the story you feel you need to tell and the message you need to share. Because so many of my clients are therapist bloggers and it's about sharing that story about going to the grocery store. Maybe, you know, what was so striking about that? Why do you need to take us to that particular market on that particular day? What is there? What truth is there in and then I bought way too many cookies. And a lot of that is the story behind it of what the stresses and the anxieties and how you may have decided to feed that fear and need with the cookies themselves. So I love that you're talking, both of you, about this idea of, of the dance because it's in everything we do. Yes. And that's such a poignant part of just authentic and real living is recognizing that the dances and everything, which means there's music everywhere. Mm. And then the question becomes, are we truly listening? So can we, can we back up a little bit and talk about what it means to listen? Of course. For me and the people I listen to, <laughs> listening is the purest and the most genuine form of love and allowing someone to be seen and allowing ourselves to be seen. We spend so much time and there's a billion dollar industry on how to communicate and how to write and how to deliver messages and how to market. There's so much talking that sometimes I wonder if we're, if we're spending enough energy and time and resource into listening. Because to me, to truly love, and I mean love in the most specific form, um, form of the word and as well as the most general, listening is about love. Listening is about quietly letting the person in front of you know, I see you, I hear you, you matter, and I'm with you. It's a form of attunement, isn't it? Completely. Yeah. And that's, if we're using the metaphor of dance and music, I think listening is an integral part of the dance routine. 
Mm. Listening to the body, listening to the sounds around us, listening to those messages we're receiving from a partner, whether spoken or unspoken. Absolutely. Mm. It's, there's a subtlety embedded in there too, right? We're not just listening to the words that are spoken, we're listening between the words. And as a therapist, as a listener, we're also listening to our own reactions and our own um, inner insight as we're taking in that of the person that we're sitting with. A hundred percent of the times. Um, the more of this work that I do, the more I recognize that while graduate school and all our trainings, you know, rightfully help us focus on the story that is being told by the client in front of us, I often notice that in our dance as therapist and client, our stories are coming together. Both of our stories are present in the room because the way I listen, the way I respond, even right now to the two of you, is so deeply influenced by the stories that brought me to this very moment. And that's impossible to suspend. And so the dance between stories, even as therapist and client, um, becomes just as integral. And, and I love your take on this. I, I know we've chatted about this in, in other ways, but I wonder if you could take us even deeper into how the therapist sits with these parts of their own story while they're sitting with their clients. You know, it's... As I think about that, it's, it's such a poignant question. As I even think about that, I think there's a step that comes even before that, Take us which there. is as a therapist, am I even allowing myself to recognize that my story is present in this room with my client? Oh, I want to shout. Or am I, I, am I shout the therapist? Yes the <laughs> I want to shout yes being... from the rooftop. <laughs> Exactly. Or am I being the therapist who truly, truly has bought into, and I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, um, who has truly bought into this myth of being neutral and objective and almost like emotional robots? Oh, yeah. Wait, so is this, are you fully owning and claiming your humanity? Is that what I might be hearing you know here? <laughs> I'm going to get into so much trouble for this. They're going to chase me out with flaming torches for saying this. But guess what? I am a human being first, and I play the role of a therapist in different settings. It's not the other way around. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, please. Yes. Let's preach this, please. This is, this is the <laughs> message we need. And to remember, yes. of course, that the humans that you're seeing on the other side of the office sitting in the couch opposite you need to know that because that then makes it so much <sighs> easier isn't exactly the word, but there is authentic oh. is the word. Well, it, it, <laughs> well it's yes, it's about it's everyone being authentic, but it, it, it invites and is more welcoming for a client to walk into a room because what I mean as the non-therapist of this particular crew right here, I can say, wow, it can be really intimidating to walk into a space like that. And if anything, knowing you're walking in to sit and talk with another human being, not with a diploma who knows a lot about what it's like to be a person. Instead, you're sitting with a human so you can be fully human. It's an invitation. It's permission to be authentic. And it's, I think it's, it's a further invitation for us to really, really, really sit down 
and recognize how is it that I want to be seen as a therapist? Mm. Because again, all of our training, um, even all of our web copy and just everything we're about teaches us to talk about the degrees we got and the, the clientele we work with and where we've been. And there aren't enough therapists who want to just openly say, look, I'm a therapist because I love hearing about people's lives and I love figuring out how to go about this messy human experience. And I truly just want to hang out and brainstorm with you. And that's not my graduate training. That's, that's my life experience. I want to sit with the person who needs something that I can offer them. And I just want to have a conversation. Yes. You know, and what, what comes up for me is, as I'm hearing you say those words is in my own experience as a therapist, but also as someone who's been in therapy, it's those kinds of experiences that create the invitation for me to sit down and get comfortable with you. And that's, yes. that tends to be what I hear from my clients too. It's like, you know, that we knew that this was going to be really hard coming in. We knew we were bringing in a mess, but it was just so comfortable to talk to you. Oh, that, and that's the key word. It's comfortable. And to me, the, again, the more I speak to the most courageous and the bravest people who become my clients, um, the more I recognize that they don't choose me because of any of the degrees that I have. I think sometimes that helps building trust. But the first part of our conversation is about, can I trust you? Can I trust that you know what it's like to feel broken? Can I trust that if I say something ridiculous in your office, you will get that? Can I trust that you will, and in my particular style of therapy, can I trust that you will be okay laughing at some of the darkest and the most morbid things that I've been through? Will you be lighthearted with my darkness when I need you to be lighthearted with my darkness? Oh, that's just intriguing right there. You want to go deeper? I want to go deeper on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, lighthearted and bringing light you know, like I'm, I'm kind of doing a little dance right now. We, we often hear about kind of bringing light into shadows, but, but also thinking a little bit about this from the perspective of being lighthearted with my darkness. There's, there's, there's healing that happens right there. There's holding. Yes. So much so that I think when we open up some windows to let some air in and we open up some windows to our soul to let some light in uh, just in the way we language how we talk about the darkness we go through the healing begins I think sometimes healing in the therapy room has to do with training and interventions and um, and I'm making air quotes as I say this being compassionate and non-judgmental and sometimes healing happens when we just give permission to talk lightheartedly about the things that we are told we have to be really serious about. Mm. Permission to go in and address the shame. Exactly. And permission to go ahead and address the secrecy that we inherit without realizing that we may not even choose it. We keep things 
shameful secrets. We keep them because they come from the outside. We are told that who you are or what you did or what you're choosing to do is dark and shameful and not right and so wrong. But if we allow ourselves to go, you know what? This is my stupid mistake right now and I'm going to make it and I'm not only going to talk about it, I'm going to joke about it. Something lifts. Mm-hmm. We we it's like the key that unlocks the handcuffs that society sometimes puts on us. It creates, sometimes the way that is lightheartedly. It creates movement. It it opens us up to the flow and into the dance and it gets us unstuck. It gets us out of that that frozen place. Exactly. And it comes back to the dance. Mm-hmm. Like and, you said. and to reshaping the story and the relationship, mm-hmm. right? Like we tell ourselves these stories and I, I know that you're a narrative therapist. So mm-hmm. um, I know that stories and the work that you do is, dare I say, almost the everything. Um, but it brings us back into that place where these stories that we're telling ourselves and the relationships that we have with these stories become the work. Yes. And Mm -hmm. even the conversation, in fact, the conversation you and I are having right now is going to become a story that we tell or we select or we reflect upon at some other point in our lives moving forward. We're writing the story of our life just by having this conversation in the way that we are having this conversation. And I think that is so important to pay attention to. And that just reminds me of that. There's more poetic ways this has been said, but essentially how you do one thing is how you do everything. And Mm -hmm. in thinking about how we write this particular story together on this particular Wednesday in the springtime reflects how we write about all interactions in our lives where real connections are made. Exactly. And, and this shows up a lot, I think in the therapy world as well, which ties into are we as therapists allowing our stories to also be present in the therapy room? The way I'm choosing to respond to your questions right now comes from somewhere. It comes from the stories that were created when I was six months old and five years old and 13 years old and 27 years old. All of those stories have influenced in how I'm speaking to you today. And that collection is then going to move forward and become the story of tomorrow. I'm, I'm smiling so big that I'm almost at a loss for words. <laughs> Have a sip of tea. Okay. <laughs> I will. It's really good. <laughs> what are we drinking today, by the way? It's called talks. Reading Nook Black... Uh, Reading Nook Blend Black Tea. Oh. Yeah, oh well, wait, can I read the ingredients to you? Black tea, rosebuds, lavender, chamomile, love, and gratitude. <sighs> oh. That's like a hug in a teacup. It really is. It tastes like one, too. (laughs) And how perfect does reading Nook feel right now? Because we're talking so much about telling the stories of our lives and uh, kind of reflecting back on that idea of what... Of what I was saying before about it's a blend. It's a blend. As is this tea, <laughs> but it's a blend of the stories that we tell and the stories that we hear. Right. It's how we're the writers and the readers. We're all of that. Yeah. We're we're taking in all of this information all the time. And you know, I want to come back now to what you were just talking about 
with the therapist because, you know, Marisa and I work with a lot of therapists in our community. Um, and I hold a lot of consultation groups where a lot of the time we're talking about things like the therapist feeling isolated, how to create a sacred space when, you know, the world outside of ourselves, um, the stuff that's flooding into our, our consciousness is a little chaotic. Um, how to, um, <laughs> how to get our clients to talk about their fear of feeling when sometimes we're afraid of feeling too, you know, like these are some of the type of things that come into our consultation groups and they're just such big things because it's how the therapist shows up as a human and what parts of ourselves do we have to put away or don't we have to put away or do we believe that we have to put away but we don't really have to? How are we shaming ourselves as therapists to do this work? Mm. Um, like all of those pieces come up and I, I you know I want to talk to you about this and we can probably talk for months. We don't, we're not going to get it all done in this conversation but um, I'm just going to open up the door and let you talk now. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you said so much about how are we shaming ourselves as therapists to be able to do this work because there there are times and well there were times in the beginning years of my career where I had I resigned to the fact that to be a compassionate therapist who is present for all of these leaders in making that I meet I somehow have to censor who I am as a person mm -hmm. because if I censor who I am as a person, that means I will create room for this person to be more of who they are. And ironically, as my story, you know, continued to be written, my story of being a therapist, my story of being a person who is a therapist, I started to notice that it's quite the opposite. The less we shame ourselves and the less we censor ourselves as therapists, the more we allow our humanness to be seen, the more room we create for our clients to feel seen as well. And so it makes me wonder if the best form of support, the best form of therapeutic healing that we can offer is letting a client know that I'm actually in the story with you and I am feeling the things that I'm feeling and I am not neutral even though my graduate training has somehow convinced me that I am because as you are sharing your story my story is showing up for me as well can we talk about that for a second it's you know it's, it's something that we don't hear enough of it's so refreshing to hear and I'm feeling the echoes of that too in, I think, other aspects of any of our lives in terms of if that idea of if I limit my story out of a belief that it'll make room for other stories, that's to me very much the story of motherhood too. That if I make my, if I take up less space and I don't demand so much, I'll be giving more to my children and giving them room to express themselves. I'm going to call bullshit on that, even though I've lived it. I, it is bullshit. No, it's a story. No, it's no, a story. No, it's a story. I'm yeah. just calling bullshit on the story. Yeah. Not on you. I've lived the same exact story. <laughs> right. And we feel like we're, we're being of better service if we try to erase our own needs, desires, identity of like, I do not want to have another conversation with a small child right now or whatever it is. That's the mother's story so often. Um, so I'm just seeing, I'm feeling the echoes is so much in, I think all, we can all relate to that. Yeah. 
And it's so striking to me because there's a story behind this. Where did we, the three of us, and all of the people who are going to listen to this conversation, where did we learn that this is how we must be? Where did we learn that this is how we must be seen? What is the story that influenced our knowing as much as it may not work for us? You know, Where did that come from? I'm, I'm hearing in my head as you ask that question, I'm hearing that that old adage, you know, that children should be seen and not heard, you know, that um, there's all these different messages that we send to children as they're growing up around what's appropriate to share and how to behave and, um, you know, all the shaping and molding that happens. And some of it is wonderful and some of it really deadens who they are, who their spirit is. Can and I, then those children grow up to be adults. Can I share what's actually a favorite line in my family? It was my grandmother yes, used to please. always say to us, my grandmother used to say to us, oh, girls, stop acting normal. And we all laugh about it now because that was just pure vintage wow. grandma. But it was, it was that, it was the variation on children should be seen and not uh-huh. heard. It was stop acting normal. <laughs> oh my goodness. I am... Like that just went straight to my heart because believe it or not, the message I got growing up was, can't you act normal for once? You're Mm. such a weirdo. Mm. There's a story, right? There's a story. There's a story. Just imagine if we all had a writing prompt to sit down and define normal. Oh, gosh. How, or, or what's the message that you received as a child right into that? Well, that's why that there's a different one right there. Yeah. But I mean, if it was defined normal, we'd have maybe 7 billion <laughs> different definitions of what that is. Yes, just... we would. And tying this back to the therapist in the room, how mm. is it that that is not the first question we ask clients when they walk into our offices? How is it that we we are trained to ask questions that come from preconceived notions of what healthy and normal and what boundaries and what self-care and all of the buzzwords that we love using. How come we ask questions with that definition already written down instead of asking, so what is normal to you? I often, you know, um, I often ask my clients in the very first session itself, How should we do this? And it always throws my clients off. And in some ways it's supposed to because what that question is is asking is what would be normal for you in a therapy session? How do you want to do this? What what do you think this needs to be like? And how come we've forgotten that we need to ask that before we start leading and guiding and shaping clients into what is healthy? Oh, gosh, I'm hearing a few different things that are just making my skin just buzz and, and get all jittery in an excited way. And one of the first things I'm, I'm feeling in there is like there's you're asking for consent. Yes. And then you're taking it a step further and you're saying, and I'm not pathologizing you. I'm not sitting here and diagnosing you and putting you in some boxes. I'm asking for your collaboration in this work. Yes. And at its very, very, very raw form, what I'm asking is for their permission to tell me who they are. It's me looking at a client and saying, I get it. I don't know you. 
I have no business deciding if the way you're living your life or the relationship you've chosen or the job you are in is healthy for you or not. It's you have no reason to trust me right now. And I want to earn your trust first. So help me see you, help me know who you are before you and I engage in this conversation that involves change and healing and transformation. Show me who you are because I want to see who you are. So what intrigues me in this is how does a client respond when you ask that question? I mean, there's many, many different responses you might get, but what do you see when you ask that? Because I'm imagining myself sitting in that chair and being asked a question like that. And And what would your response be, Marisa? I think I'd be speechless because we don't often get asked a question like that in terms of what do you need from this? It would be very easy to say, I don't know, you're the expert here. Aren't you going to help me? And Marisa, 99% of the times, the response I get is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm normal. <laughs> <laughs> did you just define that for yourself? <laughs> I, did, I defined 1% of it in the, the grand cauldron of normal that I'll, I'm going to work on defining later. Um. <laughs> and you know the, the, what you just described, being speechless and then going, I don't know, you're the expert. That is the exact, the exact point of asking that question, because what that then leads to is, aha, not knowing and uncertainty. How are we going to exist in this space where I don't know you well enough to wear my expert hat and tell you what you should do? And you don't know what to say when I ask you, how should we do this? Can we unpack that further? Because then what we're looking at is the first page of of your favorite journal and you have a pen in your hand and you're trying to figure out, what is it that I want to write? I know I'm supposed to write something. That's why I made this appointment. I should get help for something. But how do I actually want to write my therapy story? Oh, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm all like... I, I want to like be in the same room as you right now. I, I kind of wish we were one day. Okay. Um, one day, <laughs> but right now I'm sitting here with this not knowing and uncertainty and how this is so much of the process of being seen. It's uncovering these layers. It's peeling back this onion. It's going deeper into the not knowing. And it's what we do as therapists as we hold our clients in that space. But when we get stuck in our own fear, about the things that we don't know, the places where we feel inadequate, the places where we come up with that imposter syndrome stuff. Am I good enough? Am I the person who should be here? Um, that, that's the same stuff that gets in our way of holding that space for our clients. Absolutely. And it, it is something that I talk about a lot with a lot of my dearest colleagues is a question. How often in a therapy session do you look at your client and say, gosh, I have no idea, or I don't know. I don't know what you need to do here. I wasn't trained for this. I don't have the answers. I don't know. I think that's the most delicious place to be in a therapy session because it opens up the space just to be in in it together. 
And you deepen a relationship yeah. based on what you share, even if it's you're sharing the sense of unknowing. Yeah. Some of my best sessions are the ones where, and I'm, I'm sure this is going to ring for you too, but the ones where I look at my clients and I'm like, you know, you're going to know what you need to do when you know that you know what you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that sentence. <laughs> like, I'll sit here and we can sort through this together. We can wade into these messy, murky waters. And you're not alone in that. But you're going to know when you know what you need. Wow, there's and that idea of trust. What is the response trust. you get when you say that? Oh, gosh. I, I, those are the sessions where as my clients are leaving, they thank me profusely. And we might have been working together for years or months or something. And, and those are the sessions where they go, I needed to talk about this and nobody ever can listen. Thank you for listening. In the moments directly after that, there's not a lot of talking. There's a lot of soaking in, a lot of breathing, a lot of embodying their own knowledge base. So as I, as I heard you say what you said, there is this, and this may be a tangent, and if it's too tangential, please bring me back. Oh, go on uh, a tangent. As, okay. I, as I'm listening to you say that, there is a big part of me that's going, and that's what we need right now, even politically. We're in such a state of uncertainty and not knowing and not being able to trust. And there is so much talking. Yes, that there isn't enough being still and listening and going, is it possible that we will know every single day what needs to be done? And we don't need to hold on to the ideas and beliefs we've always had about right and wrong. And we don't need to avoid the fear that we are feeling politically, socially, culturally that says, oh, this is awful, or this is great, you know, however you feel about it. Are we listening? Are we allowing ourselves to be seen in this political state of being unseen and being uncertain? And what comes up for me there is that it's so hard right now to be still, that there is, mm -hmm. it's like there's this um, agenda to distract us. Mm -hmm. There's this yes. noise that's all around us and to kind of filter through that and get to the point of the information I need is this and all this other stuff is just there to distract me from this thing I need, this, this grounding, this security, this thing that I can trust. You know what I'm appreciating? I'm, I'm just so appreciative now that you're kind of folding us back into the political because just in the history of the Pops cast, you know, we've been doing this since January. Here we are recording this at the end of April. And our focus has shifted away from the political scene in so many ways. I think because here's the, we're living into the new normal and we're kind of used to this level of outrage. And we've been filtering. We've been filtering <laughs> hardcore in ways that we weren't capable of doing in January. Just speaking for Rebecca and I, and just saying, you know, not, I mean, I have reduced my NPR listenership by about 95% and finding I have, I feel a lot more sane and I'm listening to other media. I'm listening to hopefully to myself and my children and nature and my husband and my friends rather than the constant droning of this is the latest crisis or scandal coming out of Washington. But then I feel like I may be dancing so far in the opposite direction that I'm dancing a little bit towards oblivion and ignorance. And I, as Rebecca's talking about, you know, what's the distraction, the one thing I need to know, 
in terms of current events and what I need to know about politics to stand for what I believe in, I may have, you know, thrown the baby out with the bathwater there a little bit. And I don't think I'm necessarily fully alone within that. You are far from alone. This is a conversation that I'm noticing more and more even in sessions. And social media, for example, right? If you looked at people's Facebook profiles in January and in November and in December, and you look at them now, they're likely going to look significantly different. There's a handful of people I know who have kept up with having these conversations and sharing where to call and action and, you know, all of the stories that get tied into the politics of where we are today. And most of us are trying to figure out how to be in this space by in some ways numbing out or even sedating parts of us that are hurting way too much to stay present. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people do in the face of fear, in the, in the space of uncertainty and being present to something that scares yeah. the crap out of us. <laughs> It's, it's really hard to, to sit with all of it. And then there's this other layer, you know, and, and we see this in relationships all the time. I'm certainly seeing it show up in my practice in this way where the politics divide families, they divide relationships. And so it's, you know, how do, how do we bridge that? How do we continue to love each other when we disagree with each other or not even love each other, but communicate with each other and get along, um, tolerate, yes. make space for and I think that actually begins, you know, using um, the, the word bridge and using that idea of where we are. I think it begins by recognizing that there is a bridge, that the two are not actually separate. So when we get a client who is stressed out about um, a relationship or, you know, really, really distressed because of something that happened at work, the moment we sit in the room, pretending like society and politics and culture have nothing to do with this person who is so angry because their boss is treating them unfairly. We are denying the fact that there is actually a bridge between the, you know, the macrocosm and the larger influences and this person's personal life. I think it starts before we even get to the point of how do we communicate and learn to sit with difference. We have to recognize that it exists. And I think we also have to invite the discussion. Yes. It's, it's really frequent. You know, politics are, are on all of our minds, whether it's to numb out and not not address them or it's to really be concerned about things or to be super excited about it, wherever you fall in that continuum, politics are likely something that are on your mind these days. And yet how many therapists have clients coming into the office and don't ever touch or talk about politics even now? So many, even though, even though I, I will go to the extent of saying that therapy itself is a deeply political experience. Ooh, the politics go of therapy is a constant negotiation between two people trying to figure out how do we use, deny, 
or recognize the power in this room mm. of authority, of expertise, of someone who's struggling versus someone who's seen as, you know, having their shit together. Therapy is a political experience. It's an experience that touches upon personal and then, you know, larger influences of oppression and marginalization. It has to do with justice. It has to do with rights. And yet we treat therapy like it's this warm and fuzzy blanket that has nothing to do with any of that. And that is not to say that it isn't, right? There is a lot of benefit in setting goals and, you know, breathing in mindfulness and interpretations of your childhood. But my goodness, when we sit in a chair and we, we call ourselves a therapist and someone seeks us out because they're struggling, we have begun a political conversation. We have begun to negotiate power in the room because it exists. And when we deny talking about politics as therapists, we are sedating our clients and we are choosing to be sedated ourselves because what we are saying is, oh, that stuff doesn't matter. It's really just about the trauma you've come in with. It has nothing to do with the fact that the people who even inflicted the trauma on you were influenced by their society and their culture and their politics. Uh, Does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense, you know, and I, I, in a lot of different conversations I, I have in consult groups and that I've seen happening online with therapists, I hear a lot of that dismissal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's come to the point where, um, and I will own it. Uh, this is something I hesitated in sharing for the longest time, where when someone asked me, so when you see couples, what model do you use? What is your theoretical orientation? And 95% of the times you're expected to say, oh my gosh, I love EFT. And I love Gottman. And let me tell you about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. When my actual answer is... I use a model that hasn't been spoken about all that much yet, because what I have been doing as a therapist is working from a restorative justice perspective. I work with my couples from a perspective of restorative justice and negotiating power through an oppression and marginalization lens. Can I, can I turn this around on you for a minute? Can I turn the mirror? a little bit because this this is Gladly. all right this is a beautiful conversation but i think in order for for our listeners maybe to even understand what restorative justice is um mm -hmm. I, I one of the things we do on this podcast nam is that we ask the people we're talking about how did you get into this work what's your yes. what's your story here and how does it shape the work you do and the transformation that you help your clients with? And, you know, I know enough about you to know that, that this is not just a model that you use, but it's also a model that you live. Uh, and in that, you made my heart stop for a second because you just saw me. So thank you for that. Yes, it's exactly, exactly what I live. Restorative justice is the language that I found for a way of being and for a way of borrowing from deep-seated values um, and making that into the way I exist in spaces with my clients. 
And those deep-seated values, I mean, talk about a story. Those deep-seated values came from the many, many, many stories that I have lived from a very, very young age. And it's all kind of gotten woven into a tapestry that involves social justice. It involves how to stand up in the face of something that's the wrongdoing. How do we access our own power when we feel our most powerless? And my life story is not that different from that of any of my clients. So the events are different, but my life story is not. And so when I think of what has shaped me into, you know, working from this angle, it's, it's all of the stories that have helped me make sense of the injustices that I experienced and the injustices. And here's the uncomfortable part, the injustices that I have intentionally or unintentionally inflicted on people in my life. <sighs> There's so much healing in, in that. There's so much healing in the acknowledgement of both sides of what you've experienced, but also what you've inflicted. Mm. Yes. Mm. And that's where, that's one way of releasing yourself from the hijacking that shame brings about is mm. recognizing that not only have I been wronged, but I am certain that I have wronged a lot of other people. And it sucks to even say that because who wants to see themselves as someone who has inflicted pain? Mm. And at the same time, how many people do we know who have never said the wrong thing, <laughs> done the wrong thing, been rude, been mean, forgotten to call back, mm. um, you know, made a choice they shouldn't have? We've we inflict injustice all day long. We just choose to not recognize it. Yeah, because we're part of that human dance that takes us from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I guess this is so much of the, we want to live on the light side, but if we could at least just live in a state of equilibrium that says, I recognize the justice and the injustice within myself, I can recognize in the people around me. Yeah. Oh. And I think that also, that also becomes an invitation to recognize who are the people in your life that helped you experience justice and injustice i know i have key influences um that you know contributed to my own transformations and contributed to me working from a restorative justice perspective and who helped me become the therapist i did even though i'm certain they don't know that they did um, <laughs> but the people in our lives shape us because yes. our relationships shape us because that's where our stories are born mm. Can we have you on every week? <laughs> yes. That would be, that would just be, that's like going to Disneyland every week. <laughs> we don't have to leave. We'll just stay there. <laughs> Nam, this has been so delicious. And I so want to continue this conversation with you in, in so many other ways and in so many other forums and, and in person. Um, so let's make that happen one day. I would love to. I would absolutely, absolutely love to. I want this to be part of my story and I would love to be a part of yours. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. Is there any way that our listeners can get in touch with you, that they can stay connected with you? I'm sure that after this conversation, many are going to want to know more about you and your work. Ah, yes, there is. Um, I have a website and my website has 
all the information one would need um, to get in touch with me. So my website is www.soulnarratives.com. That's S-O-U-L-N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-E-S. And once you go to that website, you will see um, a tab that says Shrinkable, the newsletter. That's probably the best way to hear from me and the best way to stay connected with my, and I'm going to quote my family when I say this, stay connected to my, oh, can you not just be normal for once ideas? (laughs) (laughs) And I I just want to let all of our listeners know that Nam's writing is some of the best some of the best that I've read. So um, if you're interested in this conversation and you want a deeper dive, please do check out soulnarratives.com and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been a wonderful first chapter that the three of us, I think, get to start writing together. (laughs) Cannot wait. So as we close out our conversation with Nam today, we do want to let you know that we have some more events on the Practice of Being Seen horizon. Please think about joining us August 13th through 16th for Revision, Explore Your Stories, Shape Your Future. That's the first Practice of Being Seen retreat for therapist healers. Find more at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. So we have been enjoying Plum Deluxe Tea during our podcast today. And here's the thing. If you love trying new teas, we invite you to treat yourself to a Plum Deluxe Tea of the Month subscription. For only $10 a month, you'll receive a hand-blended, all-organic, loose-leaf tea thoughtfully chosen for the season. Tea Club members also enjoy special benefits like gift swaps, free shipping on all purchases, and access to a very loving tea community. A tea subscription also makes a fantastic gift for clients and colleagues. Caffeine-free options are available. Visit plumdeluxe.com slash tea and join now. We'll include a link to that on our show notes. For more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Farris and produced at Kidneystone Studio. Studio.